Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. A rally in the shares of Tesla after the company reports its first quarterly profit and a positive free cash flow. Uh, here to tell us more about it is uh, David Kudla. He is, of course, the chief investment strategist, founder, and chief executive of Mainstay Capital. And Bloomberg Markets uh, brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network, the number one RIA broker-dealer that J.D. Power has named highest in independent advisors' satisfaction among financial investment firms five times in a row. Learn more at Commonwealth.com. And we turn now to Mr. Kudla to learn more about Tesla. So, David, are you a believer or are you still skeptical about Tesla? I am still skeptical about Tesla. And I am uh, was very excited about the news yesterday, very excited about the, the rally and after hours trading. Uh, unfortunately, I was only able to short the stock at a high of 321 today. Maybe I'll have another chance to short it higher. It's trading about 312 now. Um, but, you know, we, it, we expected with the earnings announcement pull ahead, we'd have some good results, and we did, even better than expected. But it's about the sustainability of those results, which we don't think they could maintain, yeah. and um, all that they did in the third quarter to generate these great results. And as good as they are, best quarter by far in two years, uh, you know, everything negative, cash flow negative, earnings negative in this whopping quarter, and the stock's trading at 311. Yeah. Well, I, actually, I was going to just say, what is your target? Because I'm looking right now, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, their target is $200, underperform. Goldman Sachs, target 225, sell. Cowan, price target 250, underperform. What's your price target? Our 12-month price target on the stock is 180, and we think that longer term, the stock has to settle somewhere uh, down between 100 and 150. And we and we say that just compare two stocks, compare uh, two automakers, uh, General Motors trading at a PE of about five or six, and if we take this number and extrapolate it, a number which we don't think they can maintain in terms of earnings uh, going forward. Uh, Tesla is trading at a, would be trading at a price to earnings multiple at 40 to 50 times, which is higher than any automaker anywhere in the world. And you know we know that as we go forward, they have a debt repayment that Elon Musk said in the call last night would probably mean uh, flat, you know, no earnings in the first quarter. They've got a Model Y to fund. They've got a China Gigafactory to fund. They've got other operations to fund, and. We know, you know, when you parse through the numbers, uh, there was a little bit of accounting tomfoolery to to uh, to make a good number. Elon Musk has been managing this company headline to headline. In the second quarter, it was about being able to say they built 5,000 vehicles in one week. They only averaged a little over 4,000 Model 3s. They only averaged a little over 4,000 Model 3s per week in the third quarter after hitting that 5,000 a week benchmark. Now he's got the headline of this great quarter. 
Um, you know, our, our bear thesis is not meant like some bears on on Tesla going bankrupt. It's just that it's someday the the stock comes down to reality and trades closer to where other mar- automakers trade, uh, even if it is a sustainable business, and it's not going to be at three hundred or three hundred and fifty or four hundred dollars a share. How do you respond, David, to those investors or even those analysts who say that Tesla is not just an automobile company? Tesla is a technology company, and it will expand its offering to not just include automobiles sold through their own dealerships, but an attempt to lease automobiles for ride sharing or to compete against Uber and Lyft and also to provide charging that would really change the way people interact with their vehicles. Right. So uh, I understand that that thesis that people have talked about, but we've got now a 10-year-old company uh, that derives more than 90% of its revenue from selling automobiles. Uh, less than 10% of the revenue comes from those other businesses, whether it's solar panels or energy storage or uh, solar roof shingles, all of those those other business activities in the, the energy division and solar divisions of the company. Uh, as we look forward into the future of mobility, there is this assumption, and Elon Musk talked about it last night in the conference call, uh, there's this assumption by the Tesla bulls that that Tesla will just own the future of EV. It will own the future of autonomous. It will own the future of ride-sharing. It will own the future of robo-taxis. In autonomous, Waymo is recognized as the industry leader. Uh, you know, General Motors, when, when, uh, when um, SoftBank uh, passed on an investment in Tesla, they made an investment in General Motors' cruise division. When Honda, a Japanese automaker, wanted to look for their next generation of electric vehicle battery architecture, they bought it from GM. When they wanted to team up with somebody to work on autonomous, they did it with GM. So there are a lot of competing technologies out there. I know there are those faithful uh, uh, people, followers of Tesla, but the future is going to look a lot different than what they might think and maybe what Elon Musk might, might be preaching. David Kudla, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your views. David Kudla is founder, chief executive officer, and chief investment strategist of Mainstay Capital. A bold call, uh, shares below 200 in the next 12 months. Interesting to see uh, right now, shares up 8.4%, uh, trading just below three, up oh, actually right now, nearly $312 a share. has been a report in the New York Times about President Trump's phone, his cell phone, his personal cell phone, uh, and the fact that he continues to use it and it makes him susceptible to hacking. He has denied this. So has the Chinese government. What do we make of this? I don't know, but Clint Watts probably does. He's senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. Uh, thank you so much, Clint, uh, for being with us. So what was your impression of this uh, particular story? Do you believe it? I want to say no, but every time I say no on a story like this, it turns out to be a yes. So uh, I think there are some important things in the article 
um, to think about. And one was the notion that the Chinese government essentially identifies friends of President Trump and then goes to influence the friends to tell Donald Trump and his friends uh, what to think about different issues. Now, whether that happens on a cell phone intercept or in reality through business associates, this is a very adept uh, influence strategy. I've also seen, I think, this is actually the second or third story that I've seen uh, about the president's cell phone maybe not being secured or used in a secure way. If you remember back to the start of the Obama administration uh, when President Obama was addicted to his BlackBerry, you know, this is going back to 2008, and there was a lot of uh, worry about how they would secure it. I think they eventually convinced him to not use it because of the security issue. I'm not sure uh, that that sort of convincing has been done in the, in the White House. And, and one thing just tangentially is we've also seen a White House where a lot of aides, uh, a lot of people that work in the White House are recording each other. So every time I have doubt about these stories that we would have uh, unsecured lines that could be intercepted, I do find uh, that there are users in the White House of cell phones uh, making recordings, uh, using things sort of in, in a loose fashion, which could could lead to something being insecure. So I'm not convinced one way or another yet, but I think the approach, whether it's uh, intercepting a, a cell phone conversation or trying to influence the president through his business associates, uh, it, that I think is very true. Clint Watts, do you believe that authorities will intercept those individuals or individual who is responsible for those packages containing crude pipe bombs and envelopes with white powder that were addressed to the Clintons at their Chappaqua, New York home, or to Barack Obama in Washington, D.C., or indeed John Brennan at CNN New York Studios? Yes. I, I would actually expect them to do it fairly quickly. Um, if you look at the the packages they intercepted overnight, it seems like now that they know what to look for, they've gone through the U.S. postal system and been able to identify other ones that have been distributed. This gives them very strong leads to go back to where was the point of origin for these packages when they were disseminated. The other thing that's uh, interesting about that, this case as opposed to the last recent one, which was Austin. If you remember, we had bombings in Austin. This shows a very weak delivery system. You know, there wasn't much reconnaissance done. And the packages are are uh, rendered to law enforcement, and they're not exploded. This gives you tremendous amount of human forensics to look for. You can actually look at how they were constructed, if they had ever maybe tried to test these before. And so I imagine right now there's actually quite a bit of evidence. I think it's 10 packages that I have, I have seen uh, have been intercepted or picked up. There's, they've been routed to uh, targets that make sense based on a uh, certain ideological mindset. So they're going to, you know, descend on that fairly quickly. I think they actually have a lot of evidence to go on, as opposed to some, like in the Austin bombings back in March, when the devices are exploding, uh, when they are, are, are delivered, you know, directly by the assailant or set up in an IED fashion, that's much tougher to go on. So, Clint, do you have any sense of why the packages didn't explode and whether they were intended to explode or more intended as a warning? Yeah, just looking at it, uh, you know, just from the pictures I've seen, usually look for a few things. One, uh, what is the actually the explosive material in it? And if this is mostly black powder, from what I've heard, or, or other things just packed into a pipe, that is usually your least sophisticated. If you remember back to the terrorism uh, era with Al Qaeda, 
and, and the Zazi case, for example, we were worried about peroxide-based explosives. Um, plastic or military grade would be even more sophisticated. The other part is the device. What's the triggering device? Is it a remote detonated, pressure detonated? None of these went off, which means these could just have a device strapped to the outside that never could have, you know, detonated the device at all. What we do know, though, is these were explosive devices. That's what, you know, we've seen that from several reports now, and that they could have exploded. So I think the danger is there. I think the signal has definitely been sent, but it's not the most sophisticated sophisticated bomb maker that you might encounter. Clint, I'm wondering, from your experience in the U.S. Army and as an FBI special agent on joint terrorism, I'm just wondering, do you think that the risk from domestic, domestic terrorism has increased uh, more than it has been in recent years? I, I don't even think it's uh, increased more now. I, that is definitely the case. Domestic should be our main focus uh, as opposed to international. But even uh, going back about six years, you could see this trend coming. Uh, if it wasn't for ISIS and their sort of spectacular attacks, uh, successful attacks overseas, um, rallying a lot of Americans to join online, we would probably be more focused already on domestic extremism. To me, it's, it is far outpacing uh, international extremism. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, in this case, uh, we could. This could be an international extremist for some reason trying to cloak themselves. I think that's unlikely. Uh, and so, just based on the targets that have been picked, it looks like it's it's toward domestic extremism. But we should also look at a, a sort of a wild card hypothesis too, which is. If you want to create panic in the United States, particularly in these very divisive times of an election period, it's also an opportunity for a foreign government, uh, an intel service, to create a provocation which stirs fear and panic in the audience space, too. I think that's highly unlikely, but we shouldn't entirely rule that out. And I'm sure that's what the invest- investigation the FBI is pursuing right now is trying to determine. Clint, Clint Watts, thank you. Senior Fellow, Foreign Policy Research Institute, also Senior Fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. You can follow him on Twitter, at Selected Wisdom. And his most recent book is Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Yesterday, Wall Street hated big tech. Today, it loves it. And we're looking at green on the screen, led by Twitter, shares up nearly 18% after reporting earnings that beat expectations. Amazon and Alphabet, the parent company of Google, uh, set to report earnings after the bell, but those shares also climbing higher, up uh, give or take about 4%. Scott Kessler joining us now, head of equity research for CFRA Research in New York. Scott, let's just start with Twitter because we actually have data to look through. Can you talk about how they outperformed and what this means about sort of some of these big tech companies and social media companies being responsible when it comes to having members that count or users that count. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Look, I mean, when you see a stock like this moving, and by the way, I mean, Twitter is no stranger to post earnings um, volatility. I mean, it's a stock that moves quite a bit after their report results. Um, This time, it seems they outperformed pretty nicely. I think most notable was the 29% revenue increase, which was far above the consensus. They reported about $758 million in revenue, and folks were looking for about $700 million in revenue. And I think 
there are a number of factors that contributed to that, but most obviously is they're continuing to focus, you know, on their strategy of health on the platform as well as providing um, a good experience for both users and marketers. And then in addition to that, I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that they might have been benefiting to some extent from some of the challenges that Facebook has been going through recently. Scott Kessler, can you speak to the video aspect of Twitter's strategy? And also as a disclaimer, Bloomberg, of course, provides at TikTok, the 24-hour streaming network for business and financial news for Twitter. Tell us about video and how that plays into their future. Yeah, so, Tim, I think it's pretty clear that um, over the last year or so, Twitter has kind of refocused its strategy to some extent, and one of the big kind of um, thrusts for them from a growth perspective is video. So they highlighted um, a number of um, new agreements with respect to their live initiative, and their live initiative is you know, really at the core of what the company is about, which is really about um, getting people information and content exactly when they want it. If you use a search engine, if you use um, some type of news portal, you might have to wait until it's surfaced within an algorithm or someone can actually report on it. Um, Twitter, I think, for a lot of people is really the go-to source when it comes to breaking news. And so they've really capitalized on that by, um, I think, focusing on video as an opportunity. And they've done well. They've signed a lot of agreements. I think importantly, though, they've gained some traction, and you can charge more for video advertising than the run-of-the-mill um, advertising that Twitter might have been uh, you know, involved with predominantly over the last number of years. All right, Scott, let's shift our focus a little bit to Amazon and Alphabet, both expected to report earnings after the bell today. Amazon shares up nearly 50% year-to-date, pretty massive run. Do they have to actually show that they're able to generate a big profit this time, or do people still not care? You know, what's interesting about these companies, and I can put everyone from Amazon to Twitter um, in this kind of bucket of companies where people absolutely want to see the growth. The growth is by far um, the most important thing. But then when you can throw in um, profitability or significant profitability, especially when you might surprise people, and I think Amazon has done that. I think Tesla did that yesterday. I think that the magnitude of Twitter's beat was pretty significant. Even a company like Microsoft uh, that reported yesterday, their upside in terms of the um, revenue and earnings numbers versus expectations, those give people confidence. And that's really what I think a lot of investors are looking for right now. Scott Kessler, do you believe that Amazon, with its variety of revenue streams, whether it be Amazon Web Services or its hardware sales, its online offerings, and of course, the actual store itself, do you believe that Amazon is set for another round of growth? Well, Pim, what I can say is um, we have another team member here, uh, Tuna Moby, who covers Amazon. And so my thoughts on the company are more broad, but I think it's fair to say, and we've been positive on the stock for um, years at this point, um, yes, there are a lot of levers for growth. Um, they seem to be doing a very good job at moving into new categories. But I would also say that 
there are competitors everywhere and they're looking to take share from Amazon. I think in the core e-commerce market, it's pretty challenging and it's becoming challenging in some of the cloud services uh, offerings as well. But there are other areas that they're moving into where they're the upstart. They're kind of trying to take share. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the context of what they report later, especially from a cost and expense perspective. Everyone's looking at um, costs going up because of um, the U.S. Postal Service contract and um, increasing expenses related to that. All right. Thanks very much for spending time with us. Scott Kessler is the head of equity research for CFRA Research, and he can be followed on Twitter at Kessler CFRA. I'll just say that where the tech companies go is really where the uh, market is probably going to go in the near term anyway. They've been the real driver, right? So if these are disappointing earnings, it'll be an interesting day tomorrow. Yeah. Right now, though, shares of Twitter higher by more than 17%. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Brian Egger joining us now, Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, to talk about his experience uh, buying a ticket to win $1.6 billion in the Mega Millions uh, competition that was drawn Tuesday night. Did you win? Uh, I did not win. That's why I'm here today, as I explained to Pim. But with a one out of 303 <laughs> million quit? chance. Would you have quit? Uh, I don't know if I would have quit, but uh, my sense of urgency might have might have been modified. So. I'm so glad you didn't win because we're so pleased to see you. <laughs> so uh, let's just talk about how much attention uh, both this as well as the record Powerball drawing that will occur Saturday night, uh, how it's brought to the entire lottery industry and who's benefiting from that business-wise. Sure. So there is a bit of a trend. The lottery uh, operators have basically tightened the odds somewhat, which brings in more play, results in less frequent but much larger jackpots, and that in turn attracts more uh, lottery ticket sales. And lottery ticket sales for multi-state games have grown at about a 4.5% rate per annum over the last number of years. Brian, the companies behind this technology, IGT, International Game Technology, and Scientific Games, right? This is basically a duopoly because there's been a lot of consolidation in this industry. Yeah, that's true. IGT is nearly 80% of, of U.S. lottery sales. SciGames is about 12%. There's a company called Intralot that's 10%. But you're absolutely right. It is effectively a duopoly. Okay, so it's just the states or the companies that run uh, the lotteries for the states or the duopoly that make the money. But are there any other companies that sort of benefit as people get into the mood to plunk down money that they may most likely will never see again? So the way we look at it is the states themselves, if you look at uh, South Carolina with a big winner or New York State, basically 25 to 30 cents on the dollar spent goes to various state education funds. The lottery companies themselves basically get a small percent, one or two percent of the lottery ticket sales in return for basically either running these facility management contracts or a lottery management agreement. So uh, the lottery players do get a piece of the action, if you will, when people buy tickets. Brian, is this also a case of being able to adjust the odds? That is something that happened back in 2015 and 17, uh, the Powerball and Mega Millions lotteries slightly tighten the odds. I mean, it is true that the resulting uh, higher payouts and less 
less chance of winning results in a little more excitement, more media attention, and that does result in an elevated level of ticket sales, which if it's a secular trend, would benefit um, the IGTs and side games of the world. You know, I gotta say, do you buy lottery tickets, Tim? No. Do you buy lottery tickets, Brian, on a regular basis? On a regular basis, I do not. Um. Do you know <laughs> that two-thirds of Americans gamble and that last year they spent nearly $73 billion on traditional lottery tickets, and that is equal to more than $200 a person. Is there evidence that people are more likely to increase that amount if the total jackpot is bigger, but they have fewer chances? In other words, is this like a get rich quick kind of scheme or is there enjoyment in sort of, you know, see what you get, chances, if you get 10 bucks, great. If you get One 20 out bucks. of 303 million. Those that, were the that, chances. That's correct. So I think Powerball. what happens um, is that although the jackpots are quite large and the odds of winning become infinitesimally small, nevertheless, the, the headline of that uh, jackpot size and the associated excitement does bring in a little bit more play. And I think that's exactly what the lottery operators as well as the lottery equipment suppliers like to, uh, like to observe. And is it worth noting that the companies behind the lottery and gaming and slot machines, IGT and scientific uh, games, these are international businesses. They this are international. Not, I mean, you um, know, IGT is actually 51% owned by an Italian conglomerate, the uh, Agostini. And they get a large percentage of the watery business in Italy itself. I mean, look at IGT and scientific games. They each get about 25% of their business from kind of the North American lottery business. And of that, a certain percentage uh, goes to these multi-state draw games, which have become ever more popular. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be a Debbie Downer here for a second, but the sort of traditional belief is that lotteries are taxes on the poor. That's sort of something that a lot of people will say because people who are lower income are more likely to buy tickets. That is sort of the feeling. Is that true? I mean, that regressive scenario may, may be accurate. I think one, one thing I have read is that as the jackpots get larger, uh, somewhat more affluent individuals that would not be drawn to a, a smaller jackpot might be more inclined to play. Now, that being said, the odds, of course, at one out of 300.25 million to one uh, are not exactly making that a, 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 a rational expectation of winning. But nevertheless, there is a little bit more excitement and the jackpots attract attention. So I think he's just said yes, but... It's yes, the but, way it but is. it's everybody. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who, of all types, who bought for this particular Powerball. And there are 44 states that have lotteries, and, and basically, in terms of the contracts, IGT is in 25 of them, and scientific games is about 10 of them. So uh, it is, with the exception of four continental states, a very popular activity. Well, we're very glad you didn't win because we're very glad to have had you here. <laughs> Brian Edgar is our senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, telling us all about the uh, $1.5 billion Powerball winner and the technology behind it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.